Thank you for tuning in to the It's Only Rock and Roll podcast. I'm Don DiMuccio, and we have a tremendous show this week. The hottest working man on the blue circuit today joins us later on the netcast, none other than the legendary James Montgomery. But first, unlike yours truly, who's been ham and egging my way through the broadcasting thing, my co-host this week was a bona fide on-air personality for almost 30 years on 94HJY. And his act wasn't enough. He's one of the most talented singer-songwriters on the Rhode Island scene today. Please welcome to the It's Only Rock and Roll podcast, Pete Silva. Don, you're making me blush on a podcast even. I gotta Before we go on, I have to say two things. Right? Please. So, so for one, your intro bed was fantastic. That was pure old school radio right there. Oh, thank and you. Then, and I commend you for putting your blues in there. I heard John Lennon sneaking in there, and I'm thinking like, yeah. <laughs> I would have it all Beatles and John Lennon if I could. <laughs> so it's great to be with you. How are you doing? Pretty good. Uh, how are you holding up with this whole uh, not being able to play out thing? Uh, you know, honestly, it, it's it's been. Um, I think for a lot of a lot of people, certainly many of us in the arts, it's been. Uh, you know, you you don't panic, you adjust, and so I I've ended up. It coincided with me investing a a, a lot of uh, money, frankly, into my little studio down here, mm-hmm. and uh, and so it just became a wonderful creative outlet. I I spend a ton of time down here, and I'm putting out a lot more music than I probably would have been if I had been relying on uh, uh, other studio sources, and also if I weren't so busy i'm just home a lot <laughs> so i'm i'm writing a lot of songs and recording them and getting them out there so to answer your question more directly thankfully i have my health and uh, everything else is going great that's fantastic now walk yeah. us through the studio what, what exactly uh, are we talking about oh it's just simple it really is you know you don't need a whole lot it's uh, i hate to i don't want to burst any studios uh, bubble or finances but uh, you i mean really at, at this level i mean where you know you don't need a whole lot i've just i've got myself a mac and uh you know, good good monitors, good microphones. You know, two, a U eighty seven, and you know, just good stuff and uh, it's a the great basics. Mic. Yeah, just the basics, just 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 what I need, and and uh, a lot of uh, perseverance, and um, I, I just do it. You know, so again, you don't really need a whole lot. You need far far. Well, put it this way. I record, and I have no patience for recording. I'm one of these guys. I, I write it, I, I get the tracks down, and then and then it's gone. It's just like I need to move on, and sure. I send it out for mixing and mastering and let them deal with it, and they're the ones that make it sound really slick. <laughs> sure. If you get the right one, sure. It's, yeah, it's, it's, I, and I've been very lucky. Yep, Soundscape, uh, Lou San Antonio, he's, he's, he's doing a great job. He just... Uh, the my latest release, I did a uh, duet with Paula Simonero, You know, inspired by the civil rights movement, if you will, mm-hmm. and, uh, and uh, everything that uh, America is uh, well is ailing from, if I you know. will. So it's a song called "Say My Name, Freedom." A little plug there, but anyway, um, we'll be playing uh, it later on in the show. The audience oh, will have great. a chance to hear it. Great, yeah, yeah. Lou did a great job on that. You know, that's one that came, came happened fast. I, I came down, wrote it, had it. Uh, recorded in about about a week or so sent it out to Lou he took about three or four days to master it and and there it is and so uh, yeah so see I'm of two minds when it comes to the whole home studio thing for guys like us who grew up around analog equipment tape editing (laughs) with the razor blades yeah I know where you're going (laughs) it's great it's fantastic because you know we 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 have the respect and the understanding I know I sound like an old but no, I don't care. no, no, it's okay. It's the guys who say, "Oh man, anyone can make a record. I'll just yeah. buy a laptop." Yeah, no, it doesn't it, work that way. That, that, <laughs> and yeah, it's 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 becoming like an, a lost art, you know. Yeah, it. Um, I I agree with you on that point, but you know, there's also that that uh, you know that the side of me that says, well, you know, but you know, a quick story. So years ago, I worked in the musical, uh, industry, uh, instrument, um, business and, uh, and I'd sell, you know, I was like in pro audio and I'd sold 
I used to sell this really expensive gear and blah, blah, blah. And it was great. And people would come in and spend tens of thousands of dollars on a board and this and that and the other thing. Mm. And the, the best music that I ever heard were the kids that would come in after buying a dumb old four track <laughs> and, and writing a song. And, you know, like they'd come back to me the next day and say, look what I wrote. And they'd have four songs done. And so I'd sure. be like, you know, well, there you go. It's, yeah, it's, uh, it's not the equipment, obviously. Yeah, but but I agree with you. I agree with you having that old school sort of um well, you know, that's why a lot of studios, I mean, you look look at a guy like Mark Knopfler, you know, British Grove Studios, a world-class studio, but yet he uh you know, it, he, he's got all this ancient. Matter of fact, he's got I think the the Red 51 or the Red 37 original uh Abbey Road EMI Beatles console there. Really? Um Wow. Yeah, yeah, he's got that there, and he's also got the the one that replaced it. The I think the TG is it TG twelve thirty five. I can't remember the model numbers, but anyway, it's the one that um, Abbey Road was done on, and it's the one that uh, Band on the Run was done on. Sure, Pink Dark Side of the Moon. Dark Side of the Moon. Yeah. So the, my my point is is that you know you're you're absolutely right. You got to have that respect. You got to have that knowledge of that old soul thing um or else it's just not going to make a good sound of record because making the record is part of the art as well as the songwriting you know what i mean and so. technology does match on too and you got to be aware of that well um, i mean did you read jeff emmerich's book where even he talked about that that board you're talking about was the first uh, oh yeah non-tube was a transistor board that That's they had right. used yep. and they were complaining then that, yeah, that, that's it's, right. <laughs> this technology—it's ruining the sound. It's, it's yeah. <laughs> making the drum sound flat. But you know what? You, again, you're 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 uh, reinforcing your point because I mean, there's a guy who who understood um, the craft, and that's what you're talking about: understanding the craft, not just like, all right, I got a laptop. Here we go. I'm a rock star. You know what I mean? Well, he understood it. He tried yeah. stuff. He stuck the microphones under the drums. You know what I mean? Right. He he, he was uh, he 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 tried stuff, and so he understood that kind of thing that's important tea know? towels on ringo's drums i love it yeah <laughs> i just did that as a matter of fact so another another short story the um on uh, say my name i i play all the instruments on my on my songs yep. <laughs> i and uh so and it's really a challenge uh the song i did i did a a bossa nova uh, that i wrote for for Paula Simonero and uh, and I wanted a flute solo on it. So long story short, I called a friend who owns a music store. I bought a flute and I taught myself enough to play it. And I did the same with the drums. And so I wanted that Ringo sound on this song. And when you hear it, you'll 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 pick it up. I'm mm -hmm, sure. Mm -hmm. um, and I I oh man, I studied. I got on YouTube. <laughs> <laughs> How do you mic those drums? How does he do it? And I did all that stuff. And I called Lou. You know what? Give me some suggestions. And that's exactly what I ended up doing, putting towels on the drums. <laughs> sure. We used to record with uh, the late, great Joe Moody. Oh, um, God. Uh, oh, Joe is an old friend of mine. What, yep. a, what a tragedy that was. Um, it sure was. I felt like a, a member of the band had, had departed because it w it's not the same anymore. Recording no. without Joe. But he would always say, you're not getting your tea towels. I'm not going to let you do it. Just to bust my balls. But I, I always loved that sound that Ringo got. Um, and, yeah. again, and again, you know, whether it was by design or is it because those great records, you know, you don't know. If he had had a yeah. different sound, would we be lauding that sound? You know, it's yeah, just, no, that's a good point. Yeah. You know, you I, don't, I don't, it's a chicken and egg thing. I, I don't, but I tell you this though, I, I, you know who the Fab Faux are? Yes. Okay. Uh, so I will leave. Will Lee, right? Yeah, Will Lee's thing. Yep. yep. So I went. I went to see them. You know, the uh, outstanding. Uh, I, I, they're a tribute band, but you know, don't think tribute like you know they come out with the uh, no costumes, right, right? Right. Right. You know, just incredible musicians playing incredible music. So, so they. I went to see um, them. Boy, I think they did the Abbey Road album, and uh, they had two sets of drums up there, and one set of drums had the towels on them, and they switched off when they when they switched off. I think they switched off and did some Let It Be stuff. Yeah, and and uh, that's when Ringo had that Hollywood kit with yep. the tea towels right. and all that. Yeah, and uh, <laughs> and there they were, and I'm like, I'm kicking my friend next to me, going like, Look, they got the towels. I don't believe it. That's so cool. <laughs> it was very cool. Yeah. When yeah. I was nine or eight, actually, it was 1979. Uh, Beatlemania came to the then the PPA, uh, the um, Ocean State. It was called. Now it's the the Province Performing Arts. Yep. And it was the run with um, Marshall Crenshaw as, oh, yeah. as John Lennon. I didn't know it at the time who he was, but I 
I had the the program, so I looked back years later. I was like, holy shit. Yeah. Hey, that's the someday, someway guy. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. And I think uh, the original Paul, Joe Pecorino, he had done, I think I'm getting that name right. He was the first guy to, to audition for Beatlemania when that whole thing came out. Yep. And um, and I was just, and again, this is John Lennon was still alive. Um, I was a big Beatle fan already. And, uh, and I remember just looking at these guys, even though obviously it wasn't, you know, uh, what was the tagline? An incredible simulation, but not the yeah. Beatles, right? But the, looking at those instruments and the sound they were getting, which obviously they had tailored as close as they could to the to the original. Sure. I mean, you want to talk about inspiration? It was the oh. cl- closest I was going to come to it to see the Beatles. You know? Oh yeah, yeah. Although I didn't yeah. know it at the time, I still had hopes. I I, I bet you got teary eyed. Come on, admit it. I was too you? young. I was too young. Uh, oh, too, too young. If I it was would, now, I, of course I would. I, I would have sobbed like a child. Sure. But, but I was a child. Uh, but I was singing. I was the only eight-year-old singing along, and I think uh, people thought I was nuts. But uh, uh, no, but, but it, it, was, it was just cool. I um, actually met one of the guys backstage, and he had said a story about how he had just run into John Lennon on the streets of New York. Oh, and wow. And he met him and said who he was and said, listen, I'm in a Beatles tribute thing, and I... Are you okay with that, kind of, you know? And John just looked at him and said, well, be careful, mate. Once a beetle, always a beetle. Wow. That's, you know, I'm not surprised. Yeah. I'm not surprised. I'll tell you, I have a friend. I won't disclose his name, but he was a massive, um, he still is, he still dabbles, but... Back in the day, the 70s and the 80s, in the heyday of the Beatle main, uh, the Beatle, um, uh, you know, all, all the bootlegging stuff, and mm. et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So he, he my friend, he's, he had a pipeline like crazy. And um, he actually sold, he had something, and I don't know, I don't remember what it was, but he had something that John Lennon didn't have. And he was contacted by Elliot Mintz oh. and he met with John Lennon and Yoko Ono to sell to John Lennon this piece of memorabilia that John Lennon did not have in his collection. Can you believe that? Was it a recording or was it just... No, it wasn't a recording. Wow. It was something along the lines of like... Um, I, I don't know what it was, to be honest with you. I, I, yeah, I think That's so cool. It's very, very cool. And it taught me a huge lesson that I think sometimes, you know, the history books uh, mislead people. It taught me a huge lesson about John Lennon and how he felt about the Beatles. He he was the biggest Beatle fan. Of course he was. on the planet. Of course he was. <laughs> you know, and so when you said once a Beatle, always yeah. a Beatle, there you go. <laughs> You're so right about that, too, because I know um, Beatle Fest goes on every year. Yeah, and I mean now it's like a money maker. I mean, I mean they they they, they do great, you know, before nights yeah. in Chicago. And yeah, but on year one, I think like four hundred people showed up in nineteen seventy four. You know, it wasn't yeah. Beatlemania was out. It was a little sure. bit you know passe. But John sent May Peng, who he was living with at the time, to yeah. the event to pick up some some albums, some no stuff. No kidding. Yeah, he had a list of stuff. Yep, and it, it, the funny thing was he ran into or she ran into um, a guy who she hadn't met the time but said little tell john i said hi and this and that i got some pictures of him and it turned out to be i'm gonna get the name wrong it was a guy he they knew in germany um it wasn't klaus but it was someone else right. um jürgen jürgen volman something like that oh okay sure sure i know who you mean yep. and he ends up yep. he ends yep. up hooking up with him and he gives him that i now iconic photo that john ended up using on the rock and roll album no kidding which he had wow. didn't even know was in existence and when he saw it, he said that's i gotta use that that's unbelievable. That was that double exposure album. Exactly. Uh, double exposure yeah, photograph. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. So when you say you know, John was a fan, he was. In a, and if you look at the interviews, back then, Paul didn't want to talk about the Beatles. Ringo didn't want to talk about the Beatles. They were too yeah. busy with their own, yeah. trying, trying to you know, reinvent themselves. Right. Uh, I remember the Lillian Roxon's Rock Encyclopedia. I had the 1977 edition. Yeah. And when you look up Wings, it says, despite what Paul McCartney wants you to think, he did have a band before Wings. And that was his mindset. Know, right? Now they're all cashing in, but not so much then. I know. You know? I, know I know. Yeah. Well, we, you and I both know as, as Beatle fanatics that so much of that feud was just the press. You know, the, the, that feud to me is, and I, we might be getting too deep for your audience here, but that feud to Screw me em. was, <laughs> that feud to me was, uh, 
was somewhat akin to the manufactured feud between the Beatles and the Rolling Stones. You know what I mean? I think there was, a, uh, you know, while yeah. there may have been some animosity between John and Paul and George and John, you know, at various times, various members, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. All in all, I think, you know, when you watch the Beatle anthology, all in all, like they said, it was all about love. They loved each other, and that was the bottom line. And they loved the Beatles. They loved what they did, and, uh, you know. But enough about them. More about us. Yeah. I got, sorry, I got you sidetracked. Not at all. Hey, I'm, I'm, I'm sitting down in my studio, and I'm surrounded by you know memorabilia from all my radio days, and it's probably 50-50, maybe even outweighed by another 10 or 20% by Beatle memorabilia. Oh, sure, <laughs> so, sure. So I wish I could show you, but it's, uh, well, yeah, I got Beatle stuff everywhere. Talk here. to me about radio. <laughs> I mean, uh, will you? I don't even know how old you are. I'm assuming we're the same Roughly same oh, age. Oh, may I'll I'll be four. I'm sixty two years old. I'm I'll be forthright with you. Okay, well I'm I'm, I'm going to yeah. be fifty next year. So oh, it, you're a kid. I got shoes older than you. But, <laughs> but I started young, and I enjoyed rock radio so much. It was the combination of records and radio was so important to me when I was eight, nine, ten years old. Yeah, and especially around here, there was some great. DJs like Chuck Stevens. Oh my goodness! And yeah. uh, do, you, do you remember uh, JB One Hundred Five had some tremendous guys like Mike Waite and Oh my goodness! Uh, you know, you go uh, Big Ange, WPRO. Yes. You got uh, Gary U.S. Steel on uh, on WICE. You got a uh, Larry Ice Cold Kruger. I mean, it's just the the jocks were unbelievable here. Did that they influence just, you uh, to get into radio? Absolutely, absolutely did. You know, the radio voice, you hear all the guys talking like that. And it's, uh, as a matter of fact, I can remember being, ah, boy, I was a kid. Oh, I must have been in high school. And uh, I had a, it was one of my first like pro gigs. And I remember playing, and Chuck Stevens was the MC. Mm. And I was just in awe. <laughs> I was just like, oh my goodness, I can't believe it. That's the guy. At the time, he was doing an oldie show, you know, but uh, it was just, that was the man. And so, absolutely, that influenced me. Um, more than I probably even realized. They talk about shock to jocks today, but man, a guy like him was way ahead of his time. Yeah, I agree. You know, uh, what a put yeah, down Chuck he could give you. <laughs> he was very, he was like that in real life, too. Oh, yeah. Very ornery. I know. <laughs> Good night, was, Elvis, yeah. whatever you are. Yeah. I mean, to hate Elvis. Yeah. I mean, that was cool. Yeah. <laughs> but but uh, yeah, absolutely. Sure. All those guys. I, li I, I, oh, man. I, I, just i idolize them you know hearing those voices coming over the radio like that oh my goodness just unbelievable yeah. did you go to broadcasting school was that your no i did not i i it was a circuitous route um i was on the uh i got out of high school and immediately went on the road i was on the road for five years uh in a band a couple of bands got tired i was i was literally in california i had a huge gig for me at the time in California and I just got tired and I missed my girlfriend and I hopped on a plane and went home and uh, I got a, I found a job working for an electronics chain and they started doing ads and so they wanted someone sort of in-house to voice them um, and I just said, oh, I could do that. And I'm, I'm kind of a, I can do that kind of guy and then figure out how to do it later. I've pretty much done done that my whole life. But Nothing wrong so with I that. started, yeah, I started doing that. Um, the next thing I knew, um, they were doing TV ads and they wanted me to be in the TV ads as well. And that led to uh, me working in radio. And then um, HJ, I really was just, I've just been an HJYB101, you know. Mm -hmm. um, through thick and thin from the beginning and that's that's how i got it to hjy just just by doing those ads i'd go in there to voice over the ads and um the the pd at the time thought i'd be great for a shift and and there i was you know what was the year when you started i started there in 90. okay um, i started broadcast in general in the late 80s but i started hjy in 90. you were doing god's work young man with the sound check show <laughs> oh man that was great oh i missed that i it's uh be, being able to play sound check, if your listeners don't know, is the local uh, music show, and nobody's doing that anymore in radio. Radio is, um, you know, it's just not radio. No, it's not. No, <laughs> it's it's not. not local. It's not live. It's not nothing. That's right. And, uh, and that was the that was one of the few, if you can believe it or not, one of the very few hours of actual 
local produced radio um, that you heard in an entire week right there. Sound check. I know BRU was doing it with Homebrew or something like yeah. that. Yep, they um, were. And uh, a few stations were. You know, it's funny. Look at those old uh, episodes of WKRP in Cincinnati. I'd say one in every seven episodes made a reference to Mrs. Carlson making the station go automated. <laughs> yeah. Right? And that was you know, 40 years ago. And yeah. here we are. Every station's yep. automated. And well, well, I I I could tell you uh, one of the um, I I won't name the company I worked for. You mm -mm. can probably figure it out. But uh, the part of uh, you know I, I got let go. I got let go after 29 years, and part of it is because they're they're going to start using AI. Ugh. Can you imagine that? Was, they're going to start using no, no. AI, artificial intelligence, for programming radio stations. Well. Good luck. Next up, we have Led Zeppelin. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I don't really know what it means. I don't know if that means it's going to be robots. I, I'm not really, I, you know, I was, it's just, it's Space Age polymers. That's what it means. I, yeah. <laughs> it's a sin. I mean, it, uh, the it whole is. concept of radio, and even before rock and roll, any yeah. radio, when it was, when, when they were doing comedy skit, vaudeville, it was right. the personalities. It was the connection between the audience yeah, and that guy behind the or girl behind the mic. Yeah, that's huge. Now you know I may be talking from a jaded perspective, but I don't think so. I think it, I think it's true what I'm about to say. The one of the problems now, you know, where you know, like take take a person in my situation. So here I am. I'm uh, you know I'm making recording songs, putting them out there. I have no pretensions. You know, I I know what 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 i'm going to get what i'm not going to get what's going to happen it, it's i do it because i i kind of i can't breathe without doing it but that said there are a lot of folks out there in the same situation making incredible music and they have a lot of platforms to put it out on but it's not going to happen the same way because you don't have those personalities as you said driving it you don't have that you don't have that voice at the other end back selling it and, and getting people excited about it and or front selling it and teasing it you just don't get that it's just this sort of stream thing going on and this you know what i mean that that really turns everything into wallpaper unfortunately yes you know? Yes, and that's kind of what got me into this podcast thing because I think it's the last outlet for people who want to just make a direct connection to their audience, which the technology allows. Right. It's not like we could set up an antenna in your backyard and broadcast. You could, right. but it wouldn't last to the end of the street, you know. Right. Um, so this gets out theoretically to millions if uh, if you can market it right. I, I love listening to podcasts, um, whether they're comic guys or radio guys who are just, you know, talking and uh and and hoping someone's on the other end. I think that lost art has to continue on some in some form. I yeah, they, I love you know, I love your podcast. I'll tell you what, I've heard two episodes. I heard the um Thank you. I love the one you did with uh with Gary, old friends of mine, Gary and John from Beaver Brown. Those guys they, are great. Uh, oh, great friends. Gary uh played on two of my songs, as a matter of fact. Um, they're, they're just great, great guys, but, uh, you know, it's, it's the beauty of, I think what you're saying, the beauty of the podcast is that it's the personality you, you get to, it. you know, you and get I, since I have none, I rely on the guest very, very heavily. <laughs> well, that's all right. You have plenty of personality. What are you talking about? <laughs> yeah. When I turn the mic off and it all yeah. comes out. Hey, you got James Montgomery on today and that's, yeah. uh, that's huge. He's got a huge personality. He's a great guy too. He's someone else I've known forever. We've seen him through the years. Oh, I've worked with him. Yeah, I mean, he's just great. He, matter of fact, I was great friends with uh, Paul Murphy. His uh, the late great Paul Murphy. God bless his soul. Yeah, back in the day. Yeah, um, but uh, oh yeah, James Montgomery. He's as legendary. I hate to use that word so loosely, but he's as legendary as legendary gets. You know, I love it. He shows up to a gig. He's got his. He's got a microphone. His harmonicas. He's got the little adapter. Goes into a Fender amp and blows away. <laughs> That's it. <laughs>
in beautiful New York City, yeah. I'll tell you, you know what, we came down here to kind of party, loosen up, have a good time with y'all here tonight. A little thing called schooling them bags. You think you a teacher, you play with my blue. I'll show you things, honey, that you never learned in school. I'm just schooling. My guest today is no stranger to any blues fan who frequents live venues throughout New England and beyond. With most artists dream of rubbing shoulders with their musical heroes, his career started playing with legends like James Cotton and John Lee Hooker, and it only catapulted from there. Peter Wolf called him the John Mayle of New England. I'm happy to call him a friend. Please welcome to the It's Only Rock and Roll podcast, Mr. James Montgomery. Good morning, James. Hey, Don. Good morning, Don. It's great to hear you. You know, you and I go back a long way. Uh, I think the first time I saw you, you, you played with us at the, uh, what was the name of that place down there? Faces, uh, I think it was, in Riverside. Was that correct? Yeah, yeah. Now, where, what, what was the name of that place again? Because uh, I'm in Riverside all the time now. It's not there anymore, right? No, it used to be G-Flags, and then it was Faces, and I'm not even sure what it is now. Right. I think it was a right. donut shop Faces. or something now. Yeah, a long yeah. time ago. And then, and then uh, at John, um, uh, what was the um, that place that brought in all the national acts? Last Call Saloon. Yeah, the Last Call, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Um, I forget yep. that for God's sake. Last Call, Full Moon Saloon. Those were the days, man. Yeah, yeah. It's good, good to talk to you, buddy. Yeah, same here, same here. How you been holding up with this whole not being able to play because of the coronavirus thing? Driving you nuts? Well, first of all, let me say I hate it. I've been playing live with my band for 50 years, and 
I had to be in college and to be in high school. So I mean, this is really something new to me. You know, to to, to not be to not be working, uh, to not be be on the road. I know. Uh, I've done a couple of um, podcasts. I mean, um, what do they call it? Um, a couple of live um, shows on Facebook, yeah, on the yeah. internet, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I've got one of those broadcasts coming up uh, Friday the twenty sixth. Where's that being yeah. filmed? Well, it's being it's it's being filmed by Sam Copper, who used to do all the live recordings for WBCN. So we actually we're doing it in, a, in his garage, and they sell ten tickets. Uh, <laughs> and the neighbors sit across the street. Apparently, it's my first one of those, but that will be posted on my Facebook today. The link to that will be posted on my Facebook today, that's great. and that's the uh, the twenty sixth of uh, June. Uh, I think it starts around five thirty, but that will be posted. I'm gonna send it out to all my email contacts, but it'll also be on on my website and on my Facebook. And I did another one last week from New Bedford, and I've I've done a couple of Zoom uh, broadcasts. Um, so and then I've done one drive-in uh, up in New Hampshire. So that was great to actually be on stage with my duo, Bruce Marshall, Montgomery Marshall, and and you know it was that Tupelo Music Hall up there, and and they they sold every other space, and then they parked the cars like a checkerboard. That's cool. Yeah. Yeah. So everybody was safe, and um, you know they were about twenty, thirty feet away from the stage. Bruce and I were at opposite ends of the stage, and uh, our dressing rooms. We each had our own dressing room with our own bath. So it was, you know, I, the level of safety was was very high there. And um, and and I, I told them in the beginning. I said, you know, if you like something that we do, feel free to honk your horn. So, <laughs> you know, so we we were getting applause and horn honks, and people were flashing their lights on. You know, it was an afternoon show. It was like five thirty to seven or something like that, but um, or six to seven thirty, whatever it was. But but it was just so great to be on stage, uh, playing in front of real people and getting real response. And and um, you know that, that that's the great thing about what we do for a living is is our ability to share a really positive energy with with people on a nightly basis you know when when the band is playing well and uh, and you're reading to the audience on a on a spiritual level uh, it's almost as though uh, you disappear and the music itself becomes the only entity in the room so it's exactly right uh, yeah so it, you know it's a, a wonderful feeling and it's uh, wonderful to get outside of your limited self and participate in that creative energy that permeates the universe you no, know you're getting so deep anyway. on me james you're getting deep <laughs> yeah. Now, yeah, you, yeah. you brought up high school uh, being in a band since high school did i hear correctly that you were when you were young in a talent show doing an elvis tune well that was uh that was when i was in sixth grade um, oh, I, I was in a talent show and it was really funny because all the other kids had talent, you know. <laughs> one of them played Chopin on the piano. The other one ballet danced to Swan Lake. Another one you know, played some kind of saxophone piece. And, uh, and you know, these kids had another one sang and had a great voice. I mean, these kids had talent, you know. It was a talent contest. Yeah. And then I, I lip sync. I might have been the first person to lip sync because I, I know Buddy Holly did it. It was considered the first to do it on the Ed Sullivan show. Mm. But I did it. I, I had a 45 of a hound dog by Elvis Presley, and, and I took burnt cork and uh, put sideburns on and wore a shirt with a collar turned up, and I had a plastic Mickey Mouse guitar. And I had my brother John drop uh, the needle on a Remember those old 45s? Mm -hmm. The big thing in the middle there. I had my brother John drop the needle on the hound dog, and I pantomimed and lip sank hound dog. And I won the contest. Please tell even me there are photos of that even, available. And, and, no, oh. they didn't take, they didn't have cameras back then. Damn. But, uh, you know, but anyway, so uh, so I win the contest, and, and like, and that, that's when it became clear to me that to go a long way in show business, you don't really have to have talent. <laughs> no, not true at all. <laughs> uh, you were in Detroit at that time, so you must have been just soaking up the scene. Really yeah, sick, right? it, was, it, was, it was incredible back then. There were five or six blues clubs in Detroit, and, you know, the ones that, you know, I was like 16 or 17 when I started going to them. Uh, there was a couple of coffee houses, and of course you could go over there at night. And then uh, you know, but we were so close to Chicago. Detroit's like three and a half hours from Chicago. So, mm. so Muddy Waters and um, and Junior Wells and Buddy Guy and uh, you know everybody played there. And then John Lee Hooker was living in Detroit then, so he played there a lot. And so you could just go and um, 
and see all these people. And uh, and then there were a couple of blues clubs. The Living End was one where um, where they would have a matinees for underage kids. And I saw Paul Butterfield play there three or four times. But the first time I saw Paul Butterfield was in a coffee house there. But it was really loose. And, um, you know, in the dressing rooms, uh, you know, the artists could bring in their booze or whatever. Yeah. So sometimes, like, at the chess made at the coffee house when the show was over, um, you know, these other musicians would come in because they could just kind of drink for free. So you, you and, and you, you'd be able to walk into the dressing room and just start talking with James Cotton or, or Buddy Guy or whoever, you know. Yeah. You know, it's not like today when Buddy Guy and Junior Wells used to come to Cambridge. Sometimes they'd put a few guys in, in their band up in our band house to save money. And then um, I remember one, one night, Junior Wells and I nailed the bologna sandwich to the wall of the apartment. I don't know why we did it, but we did. <laughs> And then when we moved out of that band house about two years later, the bowling sandwich looked exactly like it did when we nailed it up. Some, <laughs> so I'm trying to figure out how many preservatives were in that thing. Wow. And then, and then, and then you know, Buddy Guy used to use us as his backup band on some of the trips to New England so he, you know, wouldn't have to pay his guys and have hotels and expenses. And so my point is, is that, you know, that's how long I've known Buddy Guy and, 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 uh, how close we've been over the years it's now you know i go to see him and and uh, you know none of his people in the crew know who i am or anything but it's like you know, make sure you call him mr guy so i'm not calling him mr guy for God's sake. <laughs> and then you know by the time i get backstage it's like ah oh, james it's so great to see you and then you know inevitably he asked me to play with him but you know to see buddy now you know i've, I've got to go through like three levels of security even if i have all the passes and credentials that i need and he's you know, like the last that, one left of all the you know the old yeah guy. he really is he really is and um uh, we, we did interview him um I, I sat in with him at, at Salisbury Beach last year with Tom Hambridge, you know, a great producer and, uh, and a tremendous drummer. And, but I sat in with Buddy and we interviewed him for the film I'm doing about James Cotton. Yep. I, we're in the middle of producing a documentary about Cotton. I'm actually in the documentary about Paul Butterfield. And a few years ago, uh, I did a documentary with Morgan Freeman and uh, Willie Nelson about Delta Blues with a, a bunch of people, Charlie Musselwhite and, mm -hmm. and all those people. And, I, and then I just finished producing a documentary about my younger brother Jeff who was a, a gay activist so I'm doing a lot of work in documentary films right now That's good. as well but I do want to point out to people that they can go to www.jamescottonfilm.com and take a look at a trailer and see all the great people we have in the in the film so far we have Steve Miller and Jimmy Vaughn and uh, Rick Esther and uh, uh, Charlie Musselwhite's going to come on board and Alvin Bishop and, um, and you know every hard player in the world jerry portnoy and uh, mark hummel do you have a distributor you know, for the film yet uh we don't um we're, we're probably we're just a little bit we're we're, we're probably we're, we're finishing up our current round of funding where we'll have a rough cut that, that will be um shoppable Yep. So, um, you know, we have to get the rough cut done first, which we're hoping to get done by the end of the summer. And then uh, then we'll be in a position to go out and and start looking for uh, distributing. Although there's a company on the West Coast, uh, actually the record label that I'm on now, uh, Cleopatra Records, uh, has a film division. And they've already expressed interest. That's a good company. They just put out Robert Gordon's new album, and he was on the show last week. Oh, cool. Yeah. Oh, good for, yeah. oh, that's cool. Yeah, he's very cool. Robert Gordon, huh? Yeah, wow. Yeah. yeah, I used to party with him in New York back in the days when we were all bad kids. <laughs> you hanging out with that whole scene, those CBG? Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. He was a great guy. We, we spent a lot of time yep. together. Right. You were an English major at Boston University in the early 70s, and that's when you formed your first working band in the New England area. Yeah. Well, you know what happened is I was working with a Carlo Winfield band, and half of the band lived in Boston, and the other half lived in Woodstock. And, you know, that was during the heyday of Woodstock, you know, because, you know, Van Morrison was living there, and Paul Butterfield, and Maria, Maria Maldar, and, uh, you know, Todd Rundgren. So, you know, I would go on the weekends from, from college. Me and David Maxwell would take the bus to Woodstock, and we'd play the weekend, and then I'd come back and uh, go and go to BU. 
but it was great because you know we hanging out with Van and Paul and Maria and all these people and uh, and playing. So, um, but but they were like I say, half the band was in New York and half was in uh, in Boston. And after they did all these big tours, they they really weren't willing to step back and keep the band working by doing a certain amount of club work as well as tours. So they weren't working that much. Right. And I wanted to work more, and there was a blues club on River Street in Cambridge called The Candlelight, and all the early New England blues musicians got their start there. So I wanted to start a band with my boss, Billy Caldwell, and his drummer, Chuck Puro, and I brought a bass player in from Detroit, Billy Mather. I wanted to start a band with with those four guys and start playing The Candlelight so we could play and make a little extra money. In those days, I think they were paying $125 or $150 for the band. But anyway, so... I was sitting with Billy Caldwell, who, who was, by the way, one of the greatest guitar players I've ever seen in my life. Mm. Um, uh, you know, just ask B.B. King or Freddie King or Albert King. They all loved him. They, they, they recognized him as a genius. So I'm sitting there with Billy Caldwell, and he's, he's drinking some Calvert whiskey. And um, I told him my plan. I said, you know, Billy, um, we could start working the candlelight. We could be the best band over there if we had you on guitar and we were playing the candlelight. So um, he took a hit off of his cigarette and then um, took a huge gulp directly out of a pint of Calvert whiskey. Exhaled the cigarette and he said, he says, I'll do what he says. But we have to name the band after you in case it sucks. So I said, okay, we'll call it the James Montgomery Band. <laughs> and that's how that and that's started. How, and that's how my Boston band got started. Caldwell said, we have to name it after you in case it sucks. So that, so that was the name of the band. Certainly didn't suck, I guess. Because <laughs> Yeah, no, it didn't. By the time I was a senior in, in college, my band was, was really popular. We were doing, uh, you know, 1,500 people a night and all that stuff, you know. So. Was it instant or was there a key moment or a key gig that kind of propelled you? Or? Well, I brought in, I brought in this, I, I played one summer uh, in Detroit with this band called the Gold Brothers. They, they were one of John Sinclair's favorite bands. And he was managing MC5 at the time. Yeah. So I spent a summer with the Gold Brothers between junior and senior year and playing opening shows uh, for Iggy Pop, who was in the Stooges back then. Yep. And before that, he was Jimmy Osterberg. I used to see him when he was in high school with his blues band called the Prime Movers. And his, his real name is Jimmy Osterberg. So, but then he changed to the Ziggy and the Stooges and really invented punk rock right in front of me. Sure. I mean, he, he would spit on the crowd. And when, and when he did stage dives, he didn't dive into the waiting arms of adoring fans. He dove on the, those picket fences they have that separate the audience from the crowd. Wow. But anyway, so that summer, I opened up the MC5 and, um, and, it, and so when I came back to college, I talked gold brothers i talked them into coming out to boston saying you know there's a lot more work out here than there's in detroit because you guys are playing a lot of top 40 stuff because that's what they play in detroit it's like the falcon lounge and stuff like that there wasn't a lot of room for original material and young white blues guys so by the time i started my real james Montgomery band with the guys i brought in from detroit and chucky Puro stayed with me from the call of winfield band you know we, we larry carson was a fantastic guitar player and an incredible front man we we shared fronting the stage he fronted half of the songs and i fronted the other half he was an incredible entertainer and a great guitar player and and everybody in the band was like a really great player you know david bain one of my college guys started on keyboards but eventually basically i took the gold brothers from detroit and at that time i, I was already established as a chance for coming in so almost four four of the guys in my original band uh were all detroit guys mm -hmm. and um and you know transplanted to boston it was a great band so we, we really did take off in a hurry it didn't take long before we were probably the number one college band on the circuit in, in new england uh, which turned out to be great because to this day i you know I, I every show i play people come up and say oh boy i haven't seen you since college and this and that and, and i always say well thanks for supporting the band all these years yeah right <laughs> but but anyway, so so you know we're we're still selling out wherever we go, and sure. um, you know we got a young. There's always young people that come to the blues, so we get them. Sure. But there's always um, people that saw me play back in the seventies and eighties who come up too. So it's it's uh, it's been a good blend. Well, I mean, I've run into people so many times who said they saw you at the Civic Center opening for the Allman Brothers, or saw you opening for Jay Giles or whatever it was back in the day. You know. <laughs> 
Yeah, yeah. We, you know, I actually opened for Ike and Tina Turner at, in, in Providence, and you know, I opened a lot for the Allman Brothers, of course. I was on their record label site. Right. 50, 50 shows with them and, and also being on Capricorn I opened up a lot of shows for Marshall Tucker and Leonard Skinner I went on tour with Steve Miller the night I met Bruce Springsteen he, he sold 75 tickets the night I met him wow and uh, so we, we we opened up dates on his first tour uh, you know so Humble Pie Peter Frampton uh, you know the list goes on and on and not only that you had a uh, an amazing record producer in um, the legendary Tom Dowd yeah, yeah, he was great to work with, a fantastic guy. Uh, you know, he had produced Ray Charles and uh, and Aretha Franklin and uh, a lot of people. Yeah, Ahmed Erdogan and and, um, and Jerry Wexler um, kind of ran the label, but Tom was like almost a third partner. Amazing guy to work with. And I remember one time um, he was taking a, a, a composite vocal of mine where I was having a little trouble staying on key with some of the notes I was playing. So, you know, in those days, you, do, you, you make one pass and you make another pass and you make another pass and you make another pass and then you take the good parts from each one and smush them together until you have one vocal and I, I said to Tom I said you know Tom it's a little weird here you know having this one vocal where where it's not just sung all the way through but I you know you know mm. you're taking vocals from seven different ones and putting them into one I said I feel a little weird about that he says what do you feel weird about that he says do you think Aretha Franklin didn't do that <laughs> you think Aretha Franklin sang those songs all the way through so apparently <laughs> apparently he was doing the same thing with Aretha well we'll take this line from here and that line from there so what once he told me Aretha Franklin did I kind of said okay then I'll do it too did I hear correctly that you've done a little bit of acting, doing some TV commercials for Dodge? Yeah, geez, I did, boy, you've done you've done your homework here. I try. Yeah, no, I did a, a television commercial for Dodge, which worked out great. Um, they flew me down to Nashville with with Chris Seal from the Uptown Horns. When we recorded the track for the for the television commercial, it was me, Buddy Guy, Junior Wells, Levon Helm, wow. Chris Sear from the Uptown Horns, and then they fleshed it out with some Nashville studio guys. But you know, so me and Buddy and Junior and Levon were doing doing the tracks, and then they all filmed commercials with each one of us after that, and and. And mine was the one that they really picked up. They flew me out to San Francisco. I had a ball out there that weekend. You should have seen my limousine driver. I couldn't believe it. I thought, I thought, I thought they were joking with me. I said, well, this is really funny, you know, with the cute little limousine driver out there and everything. But where's my real driver? She said, no, I'm your real driver. Wow. So anyway, um, so we had a great time. And, uh, and my commercial ran... You know, it was a Dodge commercial, so it ran during a lot of sporting events. Yeah, you know, which was great because it ran during the playoffs, and you get extra money for that. And and they put me down as the music writer for that because I just played some kind of a harp thing on it, and then and then I tossed the harp to this little black kid, and then and that's the commercial. And we do it while there's a Dodge sitting there. But anyway, so it was, it was great and a lot of fun, and we had it. We had a good time making. We're going to be playing uh, a lot of tracks from you throughout the show. And, of course, uh, The Oven Is On was the album when we were watching you as young bucks sitting in the audience. I have fond memories of that James Montgomery band lineup with uh, LB and Steve Abudo and, of course, the late, great Paul Murphy. Yeah, I, I can't say enough about Paul, man. He was just... Um you know, I met Paul when when we first started playing The Last Call. I was living out in the Berkshires, and oftentimes we wouldn't drive home. You know, we'd stay with a friend. Uh, we had a couple of friends in Providence. We were all ex-hippies in some way, so, you know, crashing at someone's house for the night and driving home the next day was not a, a big deal. And then, so sometimes I would stay with Paul, and he would play it. And I, I saw it way back then, you know, that he was probably, in my mind, one of the best rhythm guitar players that ever lived. And um, so eventually, you know, um, I, I played a show at the last call. It was a benefit for the Groton Center uh, for autism. And they put me, they brought me and Commander Cody in, and they had uh, Duke Robillard's band, the Pleasure Kings, uh, back us up then, which was Tom Youngwright, Tom DeQuattro, and Paul Murphy. Sadly, all of whom have passed. I love those guys. But um, but uh, I'm going to cry now. But, um, uh, but anyway... Um, so they backed up me and Commander Cody for that benefit. And I said to the guys afterwards, I said, um, 
you know, because I was living in the Berkshires. And anyway, so I said to the to the guys, I said, "Man, I had a great time playing with you guys. Man, you guys, you guys are great. I'd love to play with you again." And they said, "Well, listen, uh, we had a talk with Duke today, and Duke said that he wants to start doing something a little more jazzy, and, and instead of the blues thing he's been doing, you know, Duke, he's such a creative guy. Sure. So he's going in one direction or another, which is which is great. He's a true artist in that sense. And sure." So he, he had gave, given the guys notice that, you know, that he was going to, you know, get a different configuration and try and move in a more jazz direction. So I told them, I said, I'd love to play with you guys again. And they said, well, we're available, so all of us. So I said, okay, you're my band now. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and I moved on to Providence a few weeks later, and um, and there was my band, Paul Murphy, Tom Enright, and Tom DeQuattro. So it, it just it was one of those things. And then years later, of course, I get a call from Commander Cody, James, James, I need a singer for the West Coast tour. you got to get out of here. So I ended up becoming a part of Commander Cody and the Lost Planet Airmen for a couple of months, um, <laughs> which was, there's the book right there. Two months with Commander Cody and the Lost Planet Airmen. That, that's, that's a book. I tell you, you should write a book. I don't know why you don't. Yeah, probably. Huh? I mean, with the stories you could tell. Yeah, there's a lot of them.
All right. want to thank James Montgomery for being on the It's Only Rock and Roll podcast. That was fantastic. It sounded extra good. Extra good. Yes, yes. It really did. Like yourself, he's been around for a long time. You've been around for a long time. What do you think the future of live music is, at least regionally? Oh, boy. You you're, think the, you're, you're asking me the COVID question. Yeah, uh, that's what I'm worried about. So <laughs> we're all uh, worried about. Is, can the club survive? Oh, boy. You know, I don't know. Well, firstly, you know, I have to say that my perspective is always one of, um, you know, you don't panic, you adjust. So um, I, I presume that's what's going to happen. Now, um, the clubs, I'm not so, you know, firstly, we got to define what the clubs are. Mm. The, you know, the, there are fewer and fewer venues way before the, the the pandemic hit fewer outlets for for bands and and um, musicians to play etc cetera, etc cetera. so and i mean if we're talking about the bigger places that's going to be a challenge i think they're going to need to somehow reinvent themselves that said i mean unless you know if dr fauci and his gang come through and we get a you know we get a pretty much a foolproof uh, vaccine etc cetera, etc cetera, uh, but other than that, I think this is going to be. I think there's. I think there are a lot of people in powerful places rethinking things, including mm-hmm. not just the venues, but also you know Live Nation and you know all these uh, all, all these big the big promoters. And I think they're going to be rethinking things. You know, um, I think you're going to. I see a future in uh, in streaming events, special events. I see a future in. Uh, I mean, I know it's bringing people together again, and it's you know again with the COVID situation, et cetera. But I, I see, uh, I see a future in uh, you know a showcase theater having a, uh, a a live streaming event of a concert somewhere. Do you know what I mean? Sure. Uh, just just like uh, what Springsteen and uh, Dropkick Murphys just did, and, and several bands. But but I'm talking about on a on a regular commercial basis, you know. Sure. So. And a couple of the local guys that I know, when he's not local anymore, he's in Florida. I guess he's local to them. Teddy Stevens. He's been doing concerts every week. First from uh, his own home studio, and now he's doing it from venues. A lot of guys are picking up on that, and like what James was talking about doing that drive-in thing. That's that's uh, you know, it's like you said, you adjust. Yeah, I, I think so. The 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 live concert business, it doesn't make a lot of people a lot of money. It makes a few people a lot of money. So I'm not really sure wh- how, how that's going to transmogrify. Big word there, switching around. I don't know what this thing is going to look like uh, after. I, I just cannot believe that. I just think that the the powers that be are going to look for the most profitable way to make it happen. Uh, I really do. I think that's what's going to happen, and I think technology is going to going to have a lot to do with it. I sure. really do. I mean, you got you know you have a lot of folks that just love the live concert, the live concert experience, um, and they'll be there. You know, I mean, when you think about it, the concert business has has already been changing a lot. You know, Paul McCartney invented that new that new concert model. You know, um, I guess about. Five years ago, six years ago, he he started doing the, these little uh, macro tours. You know what I mean? He he'd call it the X Y Z tour, but it would be he'd do like three hit three shows, hit and run, hit and run, hit and run. Right. As a, as opposed to these massive Springsteen eighteen month tours kind of thing. Right. I think I think you're going to start seeing a lot more of that, a real lot more of that. And those, you know, so you get a Sam McCartney show, and, and it'll be something big, and it'll be streamed really more than there'll be one location but the rest will be all just streamed i i I just think that that's what's going to happen and a lot of that is also because the biggest drawing live bands today are all in their 70s they're old and (laughs) and those big major tours that lasted for years and years you know two or three legs added on at the end they can't you know they can't do it no i want to i'd love to see the riders in those contracts Uh yeah case of jared (laughs) uh, oh my goodness no you're right yeah i mean paul mccartney's 78 my goodness i mean god bless him and i can't imagine the world without him but on the other hand it's like 78 ringo's going to be 80 80. you know john lennon would have been 80 it's hard to comprehend this and again you know the gold standard the rolling stones uh yeah, I, I, I'm always waiting for that moment when Mick doesn't deliver, and it never happens. He always delivers. Well, always- you have a point. You have a point here. You know, I'll tell you what, because uh, I'm I'm hardly disappointed by 
all our old rock star icons uh, hardly uh, every once in a while you know you get like mccartney's lost a you know lost a little bit off his voice and whatnot but it's still mccartney and it's he wrote those songs and but I, I i don't know i think they're they're smart they're smart people you know what i mean and um they're they're still doing it and i think they'll find a way and that's going to create the new model you know and the audiences are they're older too we have to find something to keep the business going and right. I, mean, I, I used to say this to my band. I said, geez, you know, guys, when the baby boomers retire, they're not going to instantly want to listen to Lawrence Welk music and Guy Lombardo. That's right. It's not going to happen. They want rock and roll. So we right. got to find gig opportunities that are going to be outside of nightclubs. And people thought I was crazy. Yeah. But we started yeah. booking, you know, like city events, um, you know, the gazebo yeah. tour. I yeah, used to I think it. you and I were supposed to play together at one point, right? At a, uh, that's that right. Festival. That's right. You gotta, like you said, evolve, change with the times. Oh yeah, you know. Yeah, you know. I, you know, it reminds me what what we opened with. You you said a really profound thing. You know, you you were talking about old school and the craftsmanship and all that. And uh, I mean, when you think about it, you and I both love the Beatles, but there was the you know the Beatles didn't walk into uh, Studio Two with George Martin and say, "Hey, make it sound like the 40s. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> it's true. Yeah, they, right. they were they were saying, "Make it sound like nothing we've ever heard before." Correct. <laughs> you know what I mean, so I mean that's you know, when we look back and we go, "Oh, I love that old tube sound, and I love this and that and the other thing," and that's great. Okay, that's awesome. However. You know, that when they were going for those things, they weren't looking for old things. They were looking for the new. Of course. And, uh, and like someone told me, if, you know, if John Lee Hooker were making music today, he'd probably have an iPad and he'd probably be recording. <laughs> it's, it's, you know, it has nothing to do with, it's all relative, you know? Yeah, yeah, and, it uh, is. Geez, Pete, I could I could talk to you for the next fourteen hours, but I'm going to run out of batteries. That's a long podcast, my yes, friend. Sir. You're going to lose. <laughs> but I do want to thank James Montgomery for being on, yeah. and my good friend Pete Silva on the It's Only Rock and Roll podcast. And now, I promise we're going to play some of your music. So I want you in your very best DJ voice to introduce your own song. Go! Oh boy. Here's the latest from Pete Silva on its only rock and roll. It's called Say My Name, Freedom, right here. You passed the audition. <laughs> 